Well, good morning, Gracious Church. How are you? Good. If you're a little tired um, because you went to bed late, because you stayed up to watch the Lord work, I say welcome. This is, this is a safe place. If you are a Dodger fan, welcome as well. There's unity in this place under the Lord. He just was with us in the seventh inning. That's, I'm not in charge of him. He's, he does mysterious things. So, my name is Josh. I'm glad you're here. I'm one of the pastors of Grace. And over the last, like, 30 weeks, we've been teaching in the book of Mark. And so, this, this first part's almost by way of announcement. Uh, when you preach through a book of the Bible, what's, what's fun is that you, you get to cover a myriad of topics. What's difficult is you, you don't get to skip anything. And sometimes hard things come in the Bible, and so uh, I want to give you a heads up. Next week, in Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees about marriage and remarriage and sexuality and divorce, and they talk that out. And so that's our passage for next week. So I wanted to give you a heads up that uh, we're going to take a longer sermon next week, and we're even going to have a Q&A at the end to try to talk through what Jesus is discussing with the Pharisees. And we recognize that that type of topic is incredibly sensitive, and it also requires a lot of compassion and a lot of conviction, and so uh, bring your notebooks and your Bible next week, and we'll be excited to look at Jesus's view on all of that. So that's next week, not this week, next week. Uh, This week we're in Mark chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 9? We'll be in verse 30 in just a minute. As you're turning there, as I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of a TV show, a TV show that aired in 2010 after the Super Bowl, uh, and this TV show was called Undercover Boss, and if you've ever seen this show, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty basic premise where they take a high-level executive from a company that has to make over $100 million a year, this is a large company, and they put them undercover at a very low-level service portion in, in their workforce, so the low-level job, high-level exec takes a low-level job and goes undercover. And what happens through the course of these episodes often is that this high-level exec has this transformation process go on in their life. Like, some of them kind of grew up in the company, and so they remember what it was like to be this person, uh, and it's really powerful, and it, and it births in them generosity for the company and for the people in those positions. Others of them they almost feel like they're above this position and they don't want to do that kind of work anymore. There's a transformation that happens. And this experience changes their view of service. And it either bursts in them generosity or, or sometimes bursts in them like this entitlement where they push away from it. Uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, which you should also all be, um, as well as Padres fans, there, is a, uh, there was an episode where Adam Driver, the actor who plays Kylo Ren in Star Wars, uh, he's on Saturday Night Live, and they do a skit where Kylo Ren goes undercover as a radar technician named Matt. And he goes undercover, and he's asking the stormtroopers, like, stormtroopers, what do you guys think of Kylo Ren? And they're like, we, don't, we hate that guy. And all of a sudden, the stormtrooper's choking. And, and Kylo's like under the table <laughs> using the force to choke the stormtrooper. And so uh, Kylo does not have a transformational experience going through Undercover Boss, he rather kills people, and uh, that, that's not the intent of Undercover Boss. So when, when the show, you know, puts forth this concept, what it's trying to do is to provide an experience that transforms your view, 
and it often works. And in, in some ways, that's what's happening in Mark chapter 9. There's this engagement Jesus has with his disciples that's supposed to be an experience that transforms their view of themselves, their view of service uh, in light of who Jesus is. So that's what we're going to read in chapter 9, verse 30. Just by way of reminder, they're traveling from way north all the way down to Jerusalem, and they, they go through Galilee and Capernaum on this way. Uh, but it's, not a, it's just the disciples. This is not a big group. Jesus has been teaching big groups, but this is just the disciples and Jesus having conversations. So in verse 30, it says this. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Uh, Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. So this is the second time in the ministry of Jesus that he has revealed to his disciples. He's predicted his death, burial, and resurrection to his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is making team why it is they're headed to Jerusalem. So he's telling them, hey, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and, and in the Greek he uses like this, this uh, tense that, that is already happening, like like, it's actively in motion. That's the tense that he's using. Like, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the plan that's already in motion is going to happen where I'm going to die, be buried, and raise again. And listen, this can be said no more clearly. It's as clear as possible. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. That's as clear as you could possibly say it. And he says it not like it's going to happen. He, he says it like, I'm making it happen. This is happening this has been the plan since the creation of the world, and it's going to happen. And in that moment, the disciples don't understand at all what he just said, which it could not be said more clearly, but they don't understand. They're afraid to ask. And you go, why? Why, why can't they understand? And maybe it's because their minds were already drifting to another conversation. And that's what we see in verse 33. So they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus, when he was in the house with them, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So from Galilee to Capernaum, they argue on the journey after this conversation they're having. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, this is not Michael Jordan versus LeBron, who was the greatest, or Kobe, if you're that Person. This is not that. This is not was Muhammad Ali the greatest athlete. This is not was Wayne Gretzky really the great one. Like they're not arguing about athletes of first century Palestine. That's not the conversation they're having. They're arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Like which one of them was worthy of sitting at Jesus' right hand in the coming kingdom. Which one of them was the greatest among the 12, they were comparing their credentials with one another. I think I will go first because I left the tax booth to follow Jesus. That's why I deserve to be at his right hand. Well, Jesus picked me first. I was the first disciple that he chose, so obviously he chose me on purpose, That's some, so I'm going to be the first one. Uh, I, I was the disciple, and then I went and got Philip, and I brought Philip into the team, so I actually uh, like recruited a guy. None of you guys have recruited a guy. I'm the only guy that's recruited a guy. And so they're arguing back and forth about who's going to be the greatest among them in the coming kingdom. And listen, the disciples, they cannot shake the idea that in their mind, the Messiah, when they get to Jerusalem, he's likely going to be a political leader 
or a social liberator. They can't shake this idea that's built into them that they are going to get a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to ultimately become the king of you know, this area, freeing them from Rome. They can't shake it. And because they can't shake that idea, that, that when Jesus rises to power, they think in their mind, by proxy, they will rise to power too. As Jesus rises to power, so will they. And their mind wanders towards the status change that is coming their way, the honor that is coming their way, the power that is coming their way, the esteem that is coming their way. They will finally be the popular kids in school. They will finally do it. Like, because the guy they're with becomes in charge, that means they get to be a part of that as well. And Jesus has just told them that he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be falsely accused, to be unjustly tried, to be killed on a Roman cross as a criminal, but to, to raise on the third day victorious over sin and death and the grave and ascend to the Father in glory, offering the gospel to anyone who would believe. And the disciples say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. But which one of us gets to be number two in command? That's all good. That's, way to go, Jesus. We're, we're happy for you. But what about us? What about us? And so in verse 35, it says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 to him and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And this is a big deal for, for a rabbi to sit down. You know, in the ancient world, the disciples would learn at the rabbi's feet. So this is a huddle up moment. Hey, hey, let's bring it in. Don't miss this. This is so important. I see in you that you're desiring greatness. It's okay to desire greatness. That's not the problem. It's not a problem to desire greatness. It's not about your desiring greatness. It's about your definition of greatness that we need to talk about. So what are you thinking about when you think about being great? That's what I'm concerned with, Jesus says. What does your mind wander to when you think about Greatness, because that's what I'm concerned with. I want to tell you what true greatness looks like in my kingdom and what true greatness should look like in the world. And so, in order to do that, Jesus does an object lesson, which means he brings in an object. And in this case, it's a small child. That's the object in the lesson. So, in verse 36, Jesus, he took a little child and placed them among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus takes the little kid and puts him on his lap. He said, if you want to be first, you got to be last, and this is what last looks like. It looks like receiving the least of these, and when you receive and serve the least of these, you're not only doing that unto me, you're also doing that unto the Father who has sent me, and that pleases me. So the object lesson is to clarify points. Now, culturally, there's a big difference between the way we treat our children and how the first century treated children. We basically, like, worship our children, and that's it's kind of a joke, but kind of also just true. Like, we very much value little children. It's beautiful. It's not necessarily bad, but in the ancient world, there was such a high uh, infant mortality rate that there was very little value placed on little children until they were a certain age. So these, these children were not valued. So Jesus takes... The lowest person in all of that culture, the person of lowest esteem, the person with the least to offer, the person who provides nothing in response to your service, and he says to them, 
just takes the little kid, puts him on his left, and looks at his disciples and says this. The thing that I'm doing in the world and the thing that I'm doing inside of you so changes your attitude and so changes your heart that you can no longer overlook serving anyone, even someone as lowly as these little children. That's, that's the teaching he gets. So again, this is not about desiring greatness. This is about the definition of greatness. So please do not walk out thinking, Josh told me to stop trying to get a promotion at my work or to do better in this thing or to go to the gym. Or, none of that is the issue. All of us were born with an aspiration for significance. All of us want our lives to matter. All of us want our time on earth to count. No one sets a goal and then gets excited about failing in that goal. All of us, we, we dream of wanting to have impact. And I believe that comes from being made in the image of God. We want to be great at something. I was having lunch with my daughters yesterday, sitting around eating mac and cheese and chicken nuggets because dad made lunch. It was great. And Harper, my eight-year-old, she's like, what do you guys want to be the best in the world at? And my daughter Lucy's like, I want to be the best collector in the world. And what I hear is hoarder. And I'm like <laughs> trying to lovingly tell my child, like, is there anything else you want to be the best at? Because that one is annoying to me. Uh, she collects everything, and everything's special. And I'm like, no, it's nothing special. And so she's just talking about how she wants to be the best collector in the world. And I'm like trying to reframe that, and it's not working. And then, you know, one kid wants to be a singer, and one wants to be a dancer. They're little kids, and they're thinking, what can I be the best in the world at? And that's built inside, and there's nothing wrong with that. Again, the issue is not desiring greatness. The issue is, what is greatness? What is it? For Jesus, the definition of significance, the definition of greatness is what he wants to reframe. He wants to reframe our picture. And so this is as old as like philosopher Frederick Nietzsche wrote about this, and he called it the will to power, the will to power that beats in every human chest, that we want to feel what it feels like to have some Significance. If Frederick Nietzsche is not your guy, maybe you've seen Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre is the wrestler who goes to this other guy to be his partner in wrestling, and he tell the vision he casts to his other guy, to his to his partner, tag team partner, is have you ever wanted a little bit of the glory just to see what it tastes like? That's the vision he casts to his tag team partner. Have you ever wanted a little bit of the glory just to see what it tastes like? And so that is built inside of all of us. There's a, there's a desire for us to scale up in the world. And Jesus says, okay, you want that? You want to scale up in the world? You want to be first? Well, the way you do that is by being last. Now, this, this is interesting. This is theoretically cool. This is, you know, like, again, Jesus, cool, man, like upside down. But like, let's for a, a second believe he meant that. Let's for a second believe that that. He meant what he said, and then let's for a second try to believe that in our world, and very quickly we run into the problem. Here's the problem. You and I do not know how to associate greatness with servanthood. We don't know how. We don't know how. It's built into us. 
culturally, the way waiters and waitresses are treated, the way the custodial staff is treated, the way, you know, whatever position you want to look at in the world, there are obvious classifications, there's obvious treatments of those classifications, and Jesus comes along and says, if you want to be great, this is what it looks like, and instantly our minds do not know how to associate greatness with servanthood. We don't know how, and that's what Jesus is trying to transform in us. So here's the principle. Jesus equates greatness with servanthood. It's the most basic principle that just comes pressing on us, that Jesus equates greatness with servanthood. That means, practically, according to this illustration and Jesus' object lesson, to bring the little kid in, if, if just for, for fun, stay with this illustration. Jesus were to walk into Grace Church today looking for the greatest among us. Jesus, according to this story, he would not come in and ask to find a staff member. He wouldn't come in and look for the elder team. He wouldn't go backstage to the green room and try to meet the band. He wouldn't reach out to our office administrator, Julie, and say, could I get a meeting with Pastor Josh in his office? He wouldn't do all of these things that structurally look like power. Jesus would, according to the story, he would walk in the front doors, he would take a left towards the children's ministry, walk downstairs, go into the children's ministry, and go into the first room, which is our nursery, and he would meet in the nursery a woman named Shelby, who's been serving in the nursery for many, 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 many years, like never takes a Sunday off, rarely, and he would go in there, and he would see in the nursery a girl named Shelby, and she would be, according to Jesus, the greatest in Grace Church, because she has changed more diapers than any of us. <laughs> she has served people who offered her nothing in return more than any of us. Or maybe Jesus would come on a Wednesday night to Awanas, and he would sit down at the cubby table, and he would talk to the cubby leaders and say, what does it feel like to be the greatest? And they'd be like, you must be looking for someone else, not me. But that's how upside down it is. Now listen, I don't, I don't want to press this too far, but... <laughs> There is a biblical precedence that says no church in the world should struggle to find nursery volunteers. Awkward silence. There is a biblical, and by the way, we struggle to find nursery volunteers, and so does everyone. But there is this picture that says that what Jesus is doing in us should make us seek out the lowly positions should make us seek out the places where we get nothing in return. I am not trying to romanticize this for you. I realize this is difficult. Serving kids is difficult. If you've ever been in the nursery, you feel weird afterwards. Like, I get it. Like, your brain is like, what happened in there? I don't know. Like, it's difficult. But, but stay with me. There's, there's a deeper magic happening here. That, that Jesus is saying, humbly caring for people of low status. Humbly doing that out of obedience to Christ will be rewarded with rich personal fellowship with God. One more time. Humbly pursuing serving the lowly, those who can do nothing in response, provides the reward of rich personal fellowship with God. Jesus is saying there is a rich fellowship with me and the Father and the Spirit available in the nursery. 
that's available to you. There is a rich fellowship with Christ available and serving Jesus in ways no one sees except Jesus. Now we have problem number two. Problem number one is we don't know how to equate greatness with service. Problem number two, many of us, if only Jesus knew that we were serving, it was done only to him, that would not be good enough for us. We much rather would be seen serving by people. You're like, hey, I'll, I'll serve in the nursery, and I will tell everybody I've ever met what I did last week in the nursery. Like, let's be real. There is, a, there is a real trouble in serving in such a way that says, only Jesus saw this, and that's okay with me. Only Jesus saw this, and I, I experienced fellowship with him in this. And so Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to sit at, right at my right hand, then go serve the least of these. Serve those who give nothing in return, have no alternative motives, just pure service. I was reading this, and I was like, man, stay-at-home moms might be the greatest in all of our society according to Jesus. Because what are they doing all day? Selflessly serving little sinners who offer nothing in return. Amen. 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 And there's a rich fellowship with Jesus there. There's a rich fellowship with Jesus. Like, is it enough? Like, listen, feel this. Is it enough? Stay-at-home mom. Is it enough? Nurture. Is it enough? Service. Person who serves. To know that Jesus sees you. He, He sees you. He, he loves you. He's grateful. He, he, he's turned the world upside down to say, you're not doing that as some martyr because no one else signed up or you have to do the lowly task. No, you're doing that unto him. That's really beautiful and it's really powerful, but it is different than what we are used to. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the only way to get in the front of Christ's army, he who would be the chief, must be aiming to live at the rear rank, willing to do the most humble service and to be the lowest man in the master's service. Only in this way can you rise. And this is the sentence that moves me. In Christ's kingdom, the way to go up is to go down. Sink yourself and you will surely rise. In Christ's kingdom, the way to go up is to go down. And so the principle here is this, is that Jesus will take our worldly aspirations and turn them upside down. Jesus will take your worldly aspirations, your desire to climb the corporate ladder, or whatever it is inside of you seeking greatness, he will take that. Nothing wrong with that, but he will turn it upside down. In Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down. That feels hard for us. I get it. Theologically, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, in this passage, there's a tension that we have to wrestle with, and the tension is the theology of glory, wanting greatness, and the theology of the cross, humiliation. There's a tension here that we all want glory without the cross. We want greatness without humiliation. And Jesus says, that's just not how you get it. The principle Jesus is teaching is not abstract. He's actually modeling this with his life, which we will see in a minute. So so this is not just, this isn't a portion of the sermon where I'm like, and and we're looking for volunteers in Grace Church. That's, That's not what we're after. We're after understanding the tension of what Jesus modeled in his own life and then passed on to the disciples for them to model as well. And again, sadly, the disciples completely miss it. Jesus said, I'm going to be buried and resurrected after I'm killed on the cross, and they're fighting about who's the greatest, and then Jesus gives his teaching on who's the greatest, and then the story turns again, and the disciple John, he says this, teacher, said John, verse 38, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. You're like, Are you serious? Did you not hear anything? But here we go. Verse 39. Do not stop them, Jesus says. 
For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, and whoever is not against us is for us. Now, this may feel a bit random, but this is important. The disciples, they see other people casting out demons, and instantly inside of them, they think um, comparison or threaten. They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, like, cool, cool little lesson there with the child thing. That was, that was cool. Um, but there's other people, like, doing ministry. Uh, we told them to stop. We told them they better not be, like, casting out demons in your name. That's what we do. We do that. We have a monopoly on demon casting out. We are the disciples. And Jesus is like, whoever's not against us is for us. What are, what are you guys doing? They, they want to ask Jesus if it's okay for other people to do ministry. Because, again, there's this underlying greatness thing happening. They're wondering, are those guys going to be in too? Are they going to be like, you know, on the ladder? We have to compete with them too. And Jesus is so clear. He's saying like, I'm doing something in the kingdom that is far bigger than you. And it's going to include all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds. And we're going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the task in front of you is to be faithful to serve with where I've put you and where I've given you. Be faithful to do that. Even if no one else is watching, be faithful to do that. And ministry greatness is faithfully serving where you're planted. Faithfully doing what is in front of you. And when other people in the world are also doing things for Jesus, we should have a heart that celebrates them, not competes with them. Now, this, this gets interesting because uh, theological differences are real. There's, I, I, I don't know what John meant here when he asked Jesus, but maybe he was worried that they did it the wrong way or there was something going on. So there's kind of these two tensions. Uh, I remember in college, uh, one of our professors, he, he asked this question. He said, if you planted a church in a city... And all of a sudden, that city started to experience revival, but your church didn't grow. Would you be okay with that? If God brought his kingdom to bear on your city, but your church didn't grow, and the kingdom grew, but your church didn't grow, would you be okay with that? And all of us were like, yeah, of course. And in our hearts, we're like, no, no way. Like when we pray, God, we want to change the world, we mean us, me, I want to change the world. And so even in that, there's this underlying tension of like, are these guys doing something that's sanctioned? Is that okay? And so there's that tension going on, but also there's just a reality that theological differences are real. And so as a church, we still need to be a people of the kingdom while understanding that anyone who, anyone who has the, the essentials of the Christian faith, that Christ is the Son of God, that just like he said, he would go to Jerusalem, die, be buried, raised again for the sins of the world, those essentials, that God the Father sent God the Son, God the Son sent the Spirit. This is creating the church that now fulfills the Great Commission, like the essentials of the faith, and we should be cheering them on when, we, when they see fruit in their ministry. We should be prayerfully hopeful that God would bring about through all types of gospel churches and gospel ministries and gospel partnerships, the goal for us to see awakening happen in San Diego is that the percentage of Christians would grow faster than the percentage of people moving to our city. That's what missiologists say is movement. And that's not just going to happen with our church. That's going to happen with lots of churches. So we should walk around seeing other people doing ministry and being like, bro, yes, go. It's hard. Like, it's way to go. If you're seeing any sort of breakthrough, praise God. And we celebrate that. We don't compare with that. So that, that may feel random, but there's this connection there. 
And I think what's going on under that is, is what I want us to deal with as a church today. What's going on under that um, is probably something inside of them that, that feels a little bit like an entitlement. Like, we, we follow you, Jesus. We're entitled to be first in line when the kingdom comes. We're entitled to, you know, be the ones that spread your name and cast out demons. And there's something inside of, this that, inside of them that says, we've earned this, we deserve this. And I think underneath that, that's what Jesus is trying to root out of his disciples. And I think that's what he's trying to root out of us, is this picture of, of that we, we may be above serving in some way. And so, you, you know, you joke about the children's ministry or Awanas or the parking lot team or these teams that feel like harder than maybe other teams. And if we're not careful, there are moments in our lives where we feel like we deserved to be served rather than to serve. Depending on what kind of parents you grew up with, maybe your dad went to work and then came home and just sat on the couch and watched Sports Center. And that, that, that subtle entitlement was like, I did what I needed to do today. The rest of the day will be service unto me. Maybe you grew up in that house. Maybe you grew up in the other house where you saw healthy leadership and service modeled. But there's something going on at the heart level that Jesus wants us to deal with. And he wants to come to us and say, do you feel like you are above anything? Be real. Do you, do you feel at an emotional level a bias in your heart that says, you're better than that task. And if so, you need to deal with that. Do you feel in your heart a certain entitlement that says, no, I'm, a, I'm above this thing, I'm above these people, I'm above that. If so, you've got to deal with that. And here's what's fascinating to me, that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more maturity you have and the more you should be willing to serve anywhere. But oftentimes, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more entitled you feel towards service and things in the church. I don't know how that works, but it often is the case that the more and longer you walk with Jesus, the more you feel like, I, I don't do that anymore. I've graduated out of that. And so it's not that you don't graduate out positionally. That's fine. I'm referencing what's happening in your heart. And then when people act like that, that then makes its way out into the church world. And now we're competing with churches. And there's underneath it, there's this subtle entitlement and this subtle thing that says, I am better than that task. Uh, I remember this summer, I was a part of a connect group that watched The Chosen on Friday nights. And in season two, episode three of The Chosen, if you haven't seen it, that's your loss. I'm about to tell you what happens in this episode. So close your ears if you don't want to hear. But in season two, episode three of The Chosen, The Chosen is this TV show that's kind of like following the life of Jesus, but it's beautiful. It's, it's using the scriptures. It's telling the story correctly from what, what I can see. And so in The Chosen, um, episode three, Jesus is healing these crowds, and there's a huge line of people that wants to, he's like in this little booth, and there's a huge line of people, and they're coming in, and he's healing them and praying for them, and the disciples are kind of running crowd control. And then the disciples set up camp further away from where all this is happening, and the day goes on and on, and listen, this whole episode, Jesus is not in the episode at all. And it's just the disciples engaging in like setting up camp and doing crowd control. And towards the end, they eat dinner together. And now they got to start a fire because it's late. Jesus' mom shows up. And they're just sitting around the fire. And what do they start doing? They start fighting with each other. They start arguing kind of about who's the greatest. And they start saying, I can't even believe you're here, Matthew. You're the tax collector. How did you even make it in? And then Matthew responds to Peter, I can't believe you're here. You've been cheating on your taxes for years. You know, and they just start <laughs> That's that's called accountability right there. 
I actually do the taxes, you cheater, right? So they're, they're fighting about this, and then James and John are over here saying this thing, and they're getting back, and, and this whole thing just like really starts to flare up. Who's in? Who can be in? Who can be out? And again, Jesus is just healing people all night. Won't come back until everyone's got a chance to engage with them. And it comes towards the crescendo of the episode. Like it's a 55-minute episode, and like minute 54 the disciples stand up and Peter and John, they're like about, Peter and James, I think, are about to like fight each other, which maybe could have happened in the Bible. But like, they're like about to come to blows and you hear footsteps and Jesus like stumbles into camp with blood on him, other people's blood on him, exhausted and tired from a full day of pouring himself out in service unto others. And he just stumbles into camp And the disciples see him, and instantly they're just convicted and broken and humbled. And he just, all he says the whole episode is, good night. That's all he says. One word, good night. And then he goes to his tent. His mom gets up, helps clean him up a little bit, and then he goes to sleep. That's the whole episode. And what's happening there, the the guy that wrote this story this way, it has this prophetic edge to the church to say, while we are fighting about who's in and who's out, and while we're fighting about who's the greatest and who's not, Jesus is actively engaging the world and doing ministry, and we're not joining him because we are so self-centered and entitled that we miss the beauty of joining Jesus in the mission. And so when we talk about entitlement or feeling above something or humbling ourselves, and when I come to you and say, in the kingdom of God, the way to go up is is by going down, I don't mean that theoretically. I mean that we have a Savior who didn't just say that, he modeled it. And so in just a moment, we're going to pray together and and we're going to you know, have a chance to kind of engage this at a heart level. And, and at this point in the sermon, if you're not careful, you'll think, okay, um, I need to serve more. Okay, um, I need to, like, be kinder to waiters. Okay, God, I need to leave bigger tips. All of that you should do, by the way. That's just basic courtesy. That's not what I'm saying. What, what Jesus is after isn't a group of people who have behavior modification, He's after a group of people that see in him something that was done unto them, and they're so transformed by that that they walk this world going, nothing is above me. Nothing is above me. I am entitled to nothing. Everything that has been given unto me was given to me by the one who actually was above everything, the one who actually was entitled to everything. And what you see in the story is what the, gospel, is what the disciples miss, and that is that in the gospel, you have the modeling of this teaching, that Jesus, who was the greatest of all, who was as high as could be, goes to the lowest place for us. And that's just not theoretical, that's beautiful for us, that Jesus, who is the rightful king sitting at the right hand of God, reigning over the world, humbled himself. And it, it so moved us that while we were his enemies, he did this unto us, that that transforms our heart in a way that, that we never recover from. The early church picked up on this. The apostle Paul picked up on this. So I want to read to us from Philippians chapter 2 what Jesus has done to us and how that should affect us. 
Because there, there's a question we need to ask in the church. There's some of us that say, we need to ask ourselves, do we feel like we are above serving anything? Do we feel entitled to anything? Would people in my family say, yes, Josh is the chief servant among us? Or would they say, no, Josh likes to be served? What would they say? And I need to deal with that at a heart level. And maybe there's some of us over here who serve, serve ourselves to the bone, and we need to realize it's not begrudging service, martyrdom service. It's fellowship with Jesus, and he sees me. And so we need to reframe this whole thing around what Jesus modeled to us. So as I read this, I want you to, I want you to think about this in relation to your posture towards service. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you looking to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is Mark chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Well, what was the mindset of Christ Jesus? When he brought the little kid in and did the whole thing, teaching the disciples, what was the mindset of Christ Jesus? Grace Church, this should blow us away, verse 6. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To go up is to go down. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not just a message about service. This is the gospel, that what Christ has done unto us moves us in such a way that we walk the world saying, where can I serve? I have been so served by Christ that I am moved. And when I go into those places of service, I hope no one sees me because that allows me deep fellowship with God. And what a joy it is to serve and only be seen and noticed by God. What a reward it is to serve and only be noticed by God. That is joy. That is fellowship with Jesus, and that is becoming like him. And that's what Jesus wants from his disciples, and that's what I hope that we as Grace Church can be and that we can model for the world. So let's pray together that we would become these kind of people. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that you were the great king who humbled himself on our behalf in our place. And God, we thank you that you are not telling us something to do that you did not model yourself. So God, I pray for our church. I pray for any of us that have pride in our hearts. I pray for any of us that have entitlement in our hearts. God, that we would confess to you. We would repent. And we would recognize again that the gospel humbles us to the dirt. And we would recognize again that we are above nothing. So God, move us today by the gospel. 
God, help us to believe that going up in the kingdom is by going down. God, make us a selfless people. Make us a service people. And God, don't, don't let us just to do it with our actions. God, let us do it with our hearts. And Father, thank you for those among us who serve in the nursery and the Wanas and the parking lot team and these, these, these positions that in the world seem low. God, in your kingdom, they seem high. So God, we're grateful for, for the fact that Jesus turned the world upside down. This morning, would he turn our hearts upside down again for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.